Hey guys, this is Rohan. Thanks so much for joining me today. I had a great conversation with Jeff Immelt, who was the former CEO of GE, and we talked about a wide range of topics, everything from his early career working with Steve Ballmer and Jamie Dimon, becoming the CEO of GE, and going through 9-11 on his second day as the CEO, to navigating through the financial crisis, and ultimately today, how he sees the world as a venture partner at NEA and a professor at Harvard. It was a really fascinating conversation with a lot of lessons and takeaways for how to lead and navigate your career. In his own words, he said his time at GE was controversial at best. And in my conversations with him, I found that he really does love the GE company and the people that work there and continue to work there. Thanks again for joining me, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jeff. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, Rohan, great. Two, two old GE guys talking to each other. It's great to be with you. So um, I wanted to kind of just dive right in and really jump into a story. Um, a few days after your announces the CEO of GE, you're in Chicago playing golf. And uh, we'd love to hear that story and just hear you kick it off with that. Yeah, I had, uh, you know, there was four of us, three, three childhood friends, and I played golf every summer at Skokie Country Club in Chicago. And... Uh, it was always in August, and in August of 2001, I, I was just maybe two weeks away from taking over for Jack. I'm in the locker room changing shoes, and there's a guy there, and, you know, he kind of says, hey, who are you here with? And I tell him, and he says, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I work at GE. And he says, oh, GE, he says, Jack Welch. I feel sorry for that poor son of a bitch who's going to take his place. And I didn't say to him, hey, that son of a bitch is me. But uh, Fritz and I had a great time laughing about it. Uh, and it's made a good story for almost 25 years now. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, but before you were announced as the CEO of GE, you spent a lot of time at GE. Um, you know, you went to Dartmouth, went to Harvard Business School, worked at P&G. Um, just curious if you can talk a little bit about, you know, some of the early days before being named the CEO of GE when you were in your, you know, kind of early 20s, um, what what your focus was, what are the, some of the things that you were working on and thinking about at that time? Yeah, so, you know, so I grew up in Cincinnati. My dad was a GE guy. So I grew up, a, a, you know, in the aircraft engines town. So I kind of knew the company and liked big kind of technical things. I was a combination of a, kind of a math nerd and a football player, right? So in some way, shape, or form, I was a mashup of those two things almost my whole life. So I liked team sports. I learned how to be a teammate and things like that. But I also liked problem solving and, and, and all that. So I, I went to Dartmouth. I played football all four years. I was a math major. So I, I really enjoyed, you know, kind of both aspects of that. Uh, I graduated from Dartmouth. I kind of ran out of money. and trying to figure out exactly what I want to do. So I went to work at Procter & Gamble, and my office mate was Steve Ballmer. So as 22-year-olds, you know, kind of like Steve and my desks touched each other, and, and, I, and we've been friends for 40 years, and, and so, you know, we kind of weren't too serious about work. We would go drinking together every night, and we weren't just, just – I wasn't ready to grow up. Went to business school, and that's really where I grew up. You know, I, I – uh, I, I kind of didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Two years in business school was a good way to think about, you know, did I want to be an investor or an operator? Did I want to do a consulting firm or join a big company? And, you know, by the time I finished business school, I really developed, you know, a, a taste for kind of like uh, what I thought I wanted to do. I had a lot of good friends, you know, people that 
most people know, like Jamie Dimon was a good friend. I had a bunch of really good, uh, Steve Mandel, successful hedge fund uh, manager. He was my roommate. So I had a ton of good friends. Joined GE in 1982 and gravitated towards the plastics business in sales, you know, kind of product management and sales. And I did my the early parts of my career in GE's plastics business. It really taught me how to be a really good commercial guy. And I, it was a really talented group of people. So I, I got a chance to see early in my career, you know, kind of what does good look like? How does a global business operate? And, and really, what does it mean to kind of understand markets and marketing and customers and all that? So I did that kind of early on in my career. And then I went to the appliance business in the late 80s. And they were in the middle of a product recall. Nobody really knew it at the time, but we were at the early phases of a product recall and I ran the service business. So I went from running, let's say, a couple hundred person sales force to running a 7,000 person service organization in the middle of a crisis. So, you know, I, I, you know, plastics was kind of grow, grow, grow. Appliances was a little bit of a shitstorm at that time. And I learned a lot about crisis management and kind of how do you keep people motivated uh, during a crisis and things like that. I learned a ton. I was in my early 30s and it was a job more than any other that kind of put me uh, on the path. I went back and ran the plastics business for five years. So, you know, kind of in a typical conglomerate, I was going across a couple of different divisions. And then in 1996, uh, I was named to lead our healthcare business. And, and that was really a, a, a really interesting industry. We were kind of underachievers. So there was a really a blank canvas in terms of both organic and inorganic growth. And, and I did that for five years. And that was really a, magnap, a magnificent experience. So, you know, by the time I was, uh, became CEO, I'd worked for GE for 20 years. I'd worked in global companies. I'd lived a bunch of different places. I kind of knew... A lot of people, certainly in the industrial side of the company, and you know, you, you never can be fully prepared for a job like that. But I had a pretty good context, you know, for business and for the company uh, going into two thousand, the, the year two thousand, when the change came was made. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's great. And going back to those days at uh, you know P and G with Steve Ballmer, HBS with Jamie Dimon. Uh, you know, at that time, would you guys look at each other and it's inevitable that we're going to be CEOs of the largest companies in the world? Or is it just, you know, a few buddies hanging out at the time? I'd say Steve and I definitely not. We, we were just two buddies <laughs> hanging out. I think with Jamie, like the first time you heard Jamie talk, even when he was 24 years old, you know, he was special, right? The first time you heard him talk in class, the first time you met him and things like that. And that was kind of the interesting thing about business school, you know, it was all kind of case method and things like that. And you really learned the difference between knowledge and intelligence, right? When you, when you listen to people talk and you're really trying to learn, you know, 90% of the people are knowledgeable at almost any school, but 10% are really intelligent. You know, they, they really know how to, they know how to make, you know, things uh, simpler or make sense. And Jamie was always that kind of, uh, that kind of guy. Is there a way that you kind of like, uh, you know, suss that out in, in, in people as you meet them or think about investing in them or working with them? Yeah, I think, you know, you know like obvious things are obvious. You know, when, when you, if you're working with talented people or smart people, you know, like, like you know, kind of like what to do and, and 
you know, how things are moving or how markets work. Those things are typically obvious to everybody. You know, what you need are a few people that see the things that aren't obvious. You know, like who on the very first day of COVID said, you know what? This is going to be a great two years for Amazon. I'm going to acquire a corrugated box company, right? That's intelligent. Right? But there's, there's not very many people that kind of sit down and say, okay, here's the landscape. Here's what it means. Here's what I'm going to go do. That's that's what I mean. And Jamie, Jamie always impressed me to be uh, that kind of guy. Steve was a spirit bigger than life. You know, in other words, Steve, what I saw in Steve over the subsequent decades when he was running Microsoft, you know, clearly Steve's brilliant, right? But he was just this this personality and this force of nature that, you know, he never, he, he'd watch him on the sidelines of the Clippers games. He hasn't changed, he hasn't changed a bit. And that's, you know, that's, that's why people love Steve. Yeah, it's always funny to see those reactions <laughs> on the sidelines. Um, and so you said at HBS, that's the time that you kind of, um, you know, grew up within those two years and really focused on on the future. Were there any kind of, you know, morning routines or daily habits that you started cultivating at that time? Yeah, you know, so I always worked hard and I, I had a really good core of friends that would, you know, kind of run together and play basketball together. So I'd say those were the, those are the habits. But probably the best thing I did while I was at business school is I spent the summer between years at Boston Consulting Group. And I had a great experience of, you know, they treated me great. I, I have great love and affection for BCG even today, but it gave me a window to say, that's not what I want. That's not what I want to do. Right. We, we were doing a project on a lift truck company and I found myself identifying more with the people we were consulting to than I did with, uh, you know, kind of the, the consult, the highly talented consults I worked with. So I'd say that was the thing that I, I really you know, got the most out of in business school. And I, I teach now at, at Stanford and I, I, I tell the students, you know, this is actually the time that you really got to get, you know, try to pull your life together for to take the first couple steps of your career. And so I kind of knew at that time that I wanted to be an operator. And, and I went to work with G, not with a plan, but with an idea that I would work, I would really work my butt off for five years keep my head down, raise my head at five years and see where I was. Did I like it? Was I enjoying it? And, you know, those five years turned out to be 35 years by the time I was all said and done. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing I, I read in the book, which I didn't know previously, was that so after Harvard Business School and presumably after the BCG internship, um, you know, all of your other peers obviously were going into like investment banking or consulting and I think you had an offer for $50,000 versus GE paying you $30,000. Um, and so, you know, the reason you went to GE is presumably because of the learning, but how did you kind of like, um, you know, think about that at the time of giving up almost, you know, 2X the salary uh, to go somewhere else? You know, it was, I always kind of uh, was very comfortable with my choices, you know, and so I never really, I, I always knew the money would be there over time, but that, what I wanted to do was was kind of pursue how good I could be in a certain field. So I was always very comfortable with that. And, you know, I, I tell my students again, you know, look, you go the path that you really love and are comfortable with. And don't be, you know, you might lose the five-year reunion, right? You might go back to your five-year reunion. Everybody's making more. 
you know, everybody has things that sound more serious and more successful. None of that stuff matters. It's a, it's a 40 year race, right? Find ways that you're continuing to build equity, continue to build skill. And that's really the way I always looked at life. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as you graduated um, HBS, you went on to GE, you know, worked in plastics, healthcare, back to plastics, so on and so forth. Um, I remember reading one story about uh, a price increase that you needed to uh, give to, to GM at the time and you're in Detroit. Uh, I'm wondering if you can just kind of tell that story, uh, you know, what that day was like, what you were thinking at the time, because, you know, back then, obviously, uh, GM had a lot of kind of leverage and, and power in the, the, the market. Yeah, you look, I mean, it's a couple different aspects to the story. The, you know, the first one was we just got, we just got stuck. We, we got squeezed with inflation. Um, we, we weren't going to make our numbers and there was just no escaping that. Right. So you, you learn, you know, not every career goes in a straight line. And this was definitely a low point for me. Number one, number two, when you're in a low point, you got to be accountable to take the tough actions. So in those days, you know, if you couldn't get a price increase at General Motors, you couldn't get a price increase anywhere. Right. So I took it on myself to kind of do it myself, to be there with the team and 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 lead the way uh number three i'm in the parking lot at gm those old kind of post phones we had in our car the phone rings it's jack welch <laughs> at this point i'm like three layers below him and he's he's you gotta get you gotta get 10 cents a pound you know that kind of thing so it just shows you it's it's a great welch story because um you know it just shows that he he had a nose for what was important and was willing to dig down in the organization to make a point. And then the last thing is, look, he, he said, I knew I was in trouble. He yelled at me all the time, but everybody needs a job in their career where they figure out that their boss doesn't define their success. You know, in other words, I learned that year that I loved Welch and he was a powerful guy, but you know what? I could, I could live without him. And I, mm -hmm. I think everybody needs that job that they learn that the bot, you know, you may be expendable to the boss, but the boss is also expendable to you if you mm -hmm. really have confidence. And so I learned all those things in 1994 and, uh, and those are all good lessons to learn. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've heard you talk about your and Jack Welch's relationship is complicated over time. Uh, I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about, you know, what the relationship was like when you were, um, you know, working within the company and then how that um, kind of changed as you took over the reins as the CEO. It's an interesting thing to describe today because in many ways, you know, people know of him, but there's less memory of him today. But in, in the 1990s, he was kind of like um, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and, and Tim Cook all in one. Right. He, he just stood above almost everybody else in the business world. I'd say maybe Bill Gates, maybe maybe Bill Gates and Jack were kind of on that pedestal. So he was uh, he was an incredibly powerful and famous guy. You know, somebody like that's in a company, really in any company, but a company like GE. It's not that he could ever be a mentor. He's more of a role model, you know, just because there was such distance between. Um, you know, kind of where uh, his his power base and as you're growing in the company. So I always had other mentors in the company, but he was a great role model. 
in, in many ways. I loved working for him. But you know what I, what I do in the book, Rohan, is I just talk about how the world changed. You know, the world of the 2000s is so different than the 80s and 90s. And I was really dedicated to kind of taking the company forward, uh, not being critical of him, but leaning forward in terms of where the company had to go. And sometimes that put us into some uh, difficult, uh, you know, difficult situations, right? So uh, again, I would sit here today that he's still one of the best business leaders I've ever seen. I'm so thankful that, uh, uh, that I had the chance to work with him and for him. But following him was not that easy, right? It was not that easy. And the book kind of uh, talks about that in, in a, not in a negative way, but just in a truthful way. Yeah, certainly. I think it provides a lot of the context. And uh, to your point, you know, the world changed uh, from the 80s and the 90s into the 2000s. And um, it changed immediately. I think on your second day as CEO of GE, you're in Seattle, you're visiting Boeing, uh, you know, one of GE's largest customers, uh, and it's 9-11. Uh, can you just walk us through that day and, you know, kind of from morning to afternoon to evening, what that was like? Yeah, so I was in Seattle. So I was I was on a stair stepper in the morning when the second plane went into the World Trade Center. So I knew right away bad things uh, were happening. No, nobody knew kind of the dimensions yet of what went on. Uh, the GE leadership team was scattered really all over the country and all over the world. And really, nobody was at headquarters that day. Uh, I was able to get some information because Boeing is pretty connected into the defense superstructure of the country. So I knew a little bit about what was going on before I left Boeing that day. Uh, I had a couple teleconferences in the afternoon to try to see, you know, kind of like had had we lost people, we, we lost two people, you know, kind of what was going on around the world. And then it just kind of became a steady stream of like you got smarter every minute, every day. Uh, the businesses that were the most impacted clearly were the aviation business. The commercial aviation business was really, you know, in, in very tough shape. The insurance business, because we, we, we reinsured the World Trade Center, that was in tough shape. And then the media business, we basically went almost a week without commercials, right? So that's, uh, you know, those three things were in the middle of... Uh, of really a real mess. And then I would say from 9-11 through the couple weeks afterwards, the commercial aviation business was the one that was really hurt the worst. We, we owned 1,200 aircraft. All of our airline customers were going into severe financial distress. Uh, the government was going to get involved. And it was just three or four weeks of just pure uh, chaos, right? So I think, you know, and, and since then I've lived through the financial crisis and a bunch of other things, but I'd say from a leadership standpoint for the, the list, your listeners and viewers, you know, in, in a crisis, a good leader absorbs fear, right? So some people are, some people are fear absorbers and some people are fear accelerators, right? And you, you don't know until a crisis happens. And, and so you just, you just have to keep marching and have to keep, uh, taking things on. You have to make decisions, right? So we had to make these big financing decisions around airlines. We had to do them with very little data. Uh, you know, I had to really trust the people I was with. So you have to, you have to do all those things. Um, you, you've got to know who to trust. So you've got to, you can't trust everybody, but you, you, you need two or three people that you can, that you can trust. 
And then, you, you know, kind of my, my favorite part of the 9-11 story, because I, I think it's really true, is that in a crisis, leaders have to hold two truths, that things can always get worse, but there will be a future, and that uh, typically in a crisis, you get an opportunity to reshuffle who's the leader and, and who's the follower. And I remember um, Alan Mulally at Boeing in like 2002 or 2003 launched the Dreamliner, which is the Boeing 767, which was a you know revolutionary plane, could in theory fly nonstop from Sydney to New York City, right in the depths of a commercial aviation recession, right? So, but it was his way to say, there's going to be a future, we're going to lead, um, you know, uh, uh, follow us, right? And I think, I think that's something that uh, people miss a little bit in COVID. Uh, nobody was really standing up saying, look, there's going to be a future and here's where we're going to go. So that's what I learned. Got it. And in terms of, you know, absorbing fear in decision-making, when you are making decisions with, you know, um, a certain set of data, obviously not complete because you need speed of decision-making versus going through a time when people are scared, how open are you with kind of, you know, the probabilistic nature of how you're thinking about the decisions? Is it, hey, this is the decision we're making and this is, I'm, you know, 60% confident or is it, hey, like, listen to me and acting extremely confident? How do you kind of think about that? It's a great question because I think, I think when I say absorb fear, it's not blowing smoke, right? But it's some people walk into a room. I, I guarantee it. Almost every time it's in crisis, there would be one person walking into a room and would say, "We're screwed," right? That's not the way. That's not the way to begin a meeting if you're trying to absorb fear. So what I, what I used to say is like, here's here's the way I'm thinking about where the world is right now, right? There's a lot of unknowns, but we have a good balance sheet. We've got a big franchise. And I want to uh, make sure that, you know, that we can protect our, our, our balance sheet and things like that. But at the same time, we're going to lean forward and look for opportunities. Right. So I, I would I would do that. And I'd say um, customer comes first. Right. So we are we, we want to be known through this crisis as somebody that supports our customers through the crisis. So I would give them a point of view while saying, you know, I there's there's things I don't know yet. You know, I don't know. Uh, what the insurance regime is going to be. I don't know if the government's going to step in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I would always be very open about what I didn't know, but to say, here's my point of view. My point of view is we're going to protect customers. And people can sit back and say, you know, versus just saying, okay, we're going to see. We'll, we'll see. If all you say is we'll see, people sit back and say, hmm, you know, but if you say, look, I don't know a lot of things, but we're a customer first company. And this is the way we're going to approach problem solving and things like that. That's a different, you know, you're not certain, but you're more affirmative when you, when you talk like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, and then, you, you know, you kind of fast forward to 2008, the financial crisis hits. Um, I think GE at the time, if it were considered a bank, would have been the fifth largest bank in the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis GE Capital. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what it was like going through that experience with Bear Stearns, Lehman, you know, the weeks that uh, it was kind of in the crux of the financial crisis? So, you know, when I, I talked in the book, we, we were kind of rebuilding our technology and the industrial business. But in order to do that, we had let G Capital continue to grow. So to your point, by the time uh, 
of the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy, we were the fifth or sixth biggest bank in the country, uh, one of the biggest in the world. Uh, we were not deposit funded. So in other words, we were wholesale funded. So we were the, you know, huge in the, in the uh, unsecured debt market, which was probably, you know, kind of the most noteworthy uh, of the G capital business model. And so when, when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, when Washington Mutuals went bankrupt, people that had deposits and people that could plug into the banking system, they were really safe. I mean, it wasn't easy for anybody, but they were really safe. But people that actually depended on the capital markets like us, like GE Capital, we were highly vulnerable during this time period. And the month of September of 2008, you know, look, COVID's horrible. 9-11 was horrible. Loss of life, all, all those things. Don't get me wrong. Those are horrible. But the month of September, uh, if you were in the financial service industry, it was shocking. It was like every day you had to do something, uh, 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 make a new decision, make a new commitment, pivot, learn, change. And literally every day, if you go through that month, was just a punch in the gut. And, um, you know, kind of people like Hank Paulson and Tim Geithner, they wouldn't talk about it this way, but they were making it up as they went along. And if you were in business, you were kind of doing the same thing. And so it's just hard to describe. And by the way, you know, I laugh because the TARP, which was the Toxic Asset Relief Plan, TARP, it was $700 billion. And people said, we should never do this, right? We should never do this. And today, you know, like $700 billion for the government is like an hors d'oeuvre. It's, it's, <laughs> we've lost our mind, you know, in, in those days it was, it was uh, crazy. And so, you know, kind of what we had to do is we had to be, GE had to be GE Capital's kind of TARP program. So we had to infuse cash, use our balance sheet, get it down to GE Capital. And we had to make a bunch of decisions uh, to do that. The hardest of which was on September 30th of 2008, we did an equity raise that generated 16 or $17 billion of cash kind of in the middle of the storm. And there's probably, it was probably the most important decision I made ever in my life. It was probably the most successful decision I'd made ever in my life. But all you do is you get punched in the nose because <laughs> you're just in the middle of this storm. So it's just hard to describe to people kind of what it felt like, you know, because you know, COVID again is terrible, but the government stepped in right away with, you know, maybe $4 trillion of backup. In the financial crisis, if you're in the financial services, you were the enemy, right? You were, you were the enemy and you just had to kind of keep going with all the criticism and with all the volatility. And during that time, you know, um, in the book, you discuss a lot of the time you spent with your CFO at the time, Keith Sharon, um, you know, discussions with Hank Paulson, Timothy Geithner, Sean, and so forth. Uh, obviously, Buffett participated in the equity raise. Are there any particular conversations that um, you know you look back to and were extremely memorable uh, for you during that time? I'd say a couple. You know, first, Hank is one of my heroes. I think Hank Paulson's a national treasure, really. But you know, like the pivoting of the government the day after Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, they basically decided they weren't going to let anybody else go bankrupt, right? And so they stepped in with AIG and others and, and uh, City and things like that. And it just shows how flexible human and how practical uh, human beings can be. So I think that's amazing. 
You know, something you'll appreciate, I, uh, Ruth Peratt was at Morgan Stanley at that time. She's now the CFO at Alphabet. I talk to Ruth and John Weinberger at Goldman Sachs every day, maybe two or three times a day. And, and I would just say, hey, what are you hearing? What, what should we do? What should we be thinking about? Give me advice. Tell me what I don't know. And so I had a network of maybe three or four bankers who I really trusted. Jimmy Lee, uh, Ruth Peratt, John Weinberg, David Solomon. And I was just, uh, I was just, you know, networking them all the time, right? And in addition to the people inside the company, so so you need you need friends, and you know, I always tell people like, you know, I, I did a thousand deals in my career and used a thousand bankers, and I almost all the time I didn't need them. I did it just for to be friends. But there's three days in my life I needed bankers, right? <laughs> and raising equity on September thirtieth. That was the day I needed a banker, and uh, David saw. You know, David's a friend of mine today. David kind of led that. You know, he had responsibility for that at Goldman Sachs at that time, and you know, he and I even laugh about it today in terms of just what a horrible time that was uh, for all of us. And Goldman had its own issues, right? Goldman had become a bank holding company, as had Morgan Stanley. So, you know, you just could you couldn't get enough information because none of us had ever lived through anything like this before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm just curious, um, you know, at that time, is it literally just working like, you know, 20 hour days? Is there any time you're able to like go get a workout or, you know, a longer time to go to sleep? Yeah, you might be able to have dinner with your wife, but it's it's just you're, you're literally working. So so we would work all week. And then you might take Saturday morning off and you go back to the office Saturday afternoon. And then on Sunday. We would bring in lawyers and bankers from New York City, and we'd sit around all day Sunday game boarding. Okay, if this happens, can we do this? If that happens, can we do that? And, you know, we went through the things of, like, should we become a bank holding company, blah, 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 all those, all those options. And then you, you kind of maybe get another two-hour break Sunday night, and the storm begins again on Monday morning. And, you know, you, I, I didn't want to go to bed at night because I didn't want to wake up in the morning and turn on CNBC. <laughs> turn on CNBC. <laughs> you know, so I would say to my, I'd be laying there with my eyes open. My wife would say, what, what's going on? And I say, I, I know the second I close my eyes, I'm going to fall asleep. And the second I fall asleep, the next thing I know, I'm going to have to turn on CNBC and see the market <laughs> down a thousand points or something like that. So it's, uh, it's, a great, uh, it's a great thing. The last story I tell Rohan is just, you know, about boards. Um, Ralph Larson was our presiding director. He was the retired CEO of J&J. And he, I didn't want to cut the dividend. This is in February of 09. And, you know, I, I always tell people, don't envision boards in a good day. Envision boards like, like, you know, if you're on, if you're on the Facebook, you know, like Facebook's a great company. We can debate, you know, but, but they're going through a tough patch right now, right? So this is a time when the board has to stand up. The board has to stand up and they have to make sure the right things are being done. And if they if they love the management team, they have to stand behind the management team when it's unpopular and things like that. And I would say my board really did a great job during the financial crisis. We were getting crushed. But, you know, we're, we're at a Thursday night board meeting. I didn't want to cut the dividend. Ralph was a very soft-spoken, bright, congenial guy 
so we're debating, cut the dividend, don't cut the dividend, blah, blah, blah. He finally just puts his hand down, turns to me and says, Jeff forgot the dividend. We're doing it tomorrow. And you know what? I I loved him for it, right? He, he could see how much personal pain I was in, that that there was a good chance I would make a bad decision. And he just, he, he no judgment, but no conversation. <laughs> you know, he just, he just said, look, and that's, you know, that's when good boards work is when, when, you know, they're accountable in a bad time. And how do you think about, um, you know, tail risks and black swan events now after going through that experience? And then particularly with the lens of, you know, you have a very different hat on now uh, as, um, you know, your role as a VC at NEA. Yeah, I think it's a great question. You know, and I think your generation, you know, my generation until I became um, COGE, I'd never really seen a terrorist event, right? I'd seen recessions. I knew business cycles, but I had never seen then 9-11 was a terrorist event. And, you know, now your generation has lived through the financial crisis, uh, uh, Fukushima, COVID. And I, I think I think it's it's just, you need to reset what your risk parameters are, right? When our risk parameter in G Capital was maintaining a AAA, and we thought that was pretty that was pretty conservative, right? There are only seven AAAs in the world. It didn't seem outlandish. What it really should have been is, could we run the company for two years if the capital market shut down? That's a risk parameter, right? So I, I think having lived through all these things, people now have to have to understand. Uh, let, let's go to COVID, uh, uh, Rohan. In other words, supply chains have gotten crushed. What we found out is globalization doesn't work. People ha don't have redundant systems, things like that. So they're going to be smarter a year or two from now. But I would say the world was not at all prepared for what COVID meant to global supply chains. You got 50 boats backed up on, on Long Beach Harbor, things like that. So you got to, every time you go through a crisis, you got to reset the parameters and, and you've got to make sure that you, you are deep enough in those areas where, um, you know, so that you, you can't predict what's going to happen next, but you can absorb it. What haven't we had to worry about in COVID? The banking system. Why? Because the banks got well after the financial crisis, right? So, so, you know, basically, and that's a good thing. So you need to get smarter and you just need to think more deeply about what a worst case really looks like. I think in the case of um, the startups I look at now, always having enough cash, right? So don't run out of cash. I think that's, that's whether you're a big company or a small company, that's always, that's always important. And I think what small companies can do is they can pivot their business model to capitalize on, you know, one door closes, another door opens. And I, I think good companies, good startups need to use their flexibility uh, to their advantage and not let it be a disadvantage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, just kind of uh, switching gears then back to GE Capital. And I know you talk about this a little bit in the book where you say, um, you know, ultimately we knew that we needed to kind of reorganize the company to be more of a technology enabled industrial company. Um, but obviously it's tough to be able to do that when GE Capital was so large and, you know, was performing well during the good times. Um, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, 
I know how tough it is to kind of transition the company, but more particularly for like listeners, how do you reorganize or pivot your company where it's like, look, we know we need to change something, but this is a cash cow for us right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a Rubik's cube really, because you have investors on one side, you've got employees, you've got, you know, kind of counterparties that you have to navigate your way through. I think for us, look, we knew in, in the, let's say the year 2000, we had a 50 PE stock. We were 50% financial, 20% of our earnings were pension earnings. You know, I think most people would sit there and say, that's not a stable. It wasn't that anybody did anything. And, you know, we would take industrial cash, we would lever it eight to one, we would grow financial services and all the financial service earnings got an industrial multiple, right? So it wasn't, it wasn't that people did anything wrong necessarily. It's just that it was not sustainable to a certain extent. Uh, add to that, you know, you've got the most famous CEO of the previous century, you know, so you're not, you, you know, a lot of people come in and say, well, you know, my predecessor stunk, so let's reset the bar. That was, that was probably not a good card. You know, that wasn't like a card that was dealt to me, right? It wasn't that card. So, you know, the, the path we chose, which people could criticize, is we, we changed while the car was running. So we basically, instead of taking the industrial cash and putting in the capital, we started taking the capital cash and putting it into building life sciences, renewable energy, avionics, businesses like that. And we had to keep GE Capital a certain size while we were doing that. And probably the mistake I made was I thought I had infinite time. You know, Rohan, so, so in other words, um, if the financial crisis hadn't happened, we had plenty of time. But when the financial crisis happened, we didn't have plenty of time, right? And, and, and so I think the thing to learn is, you know, be profound in your thinking, right? Think about think about uh, how fast you can drive change and what the right changes you want to make. And think about timing. You know, I, I think for people, what to do is actually pretty easy. How to do it is actually pretty easy. But when to do it is actually the hard choice. And I think I wasn't quite paranoid enough about when would be the right time to, say, to take enough chips off the table from a financial services uh, standpoint, right? So that's that's maybe the, the biggest lesson to be learned. And then um, I wanted to kind of, uh, you know, fast forward again. Um, and I think you talk about this in the book, but you did a session at Stanford with your students where they could effectively like ask you anything. Uh, and one of the questions from one of the students was, uh, you know, what the hell happened at GE Power? Uh, so just curious if you can kind of give the story overall of GE Power, the Alstom acquisition, and kind of, um, you know, what that experience was like and, and the learnings from that. Yeah, you know, again, I think um, I've liked teaching. I've, I've taught now for four years because, you know, the students are unplugged. They, they don't work for you. They can ask hard questions, and they certainly did that day. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote the book is that, you know, we live in a, in a world without nuance, um, you know, and, and I think truth equals facts plus context. And I kind of felt that all the context had gone missing uh, around all of GE, but certainly GE power, right? So, um, you know, big successful business for a long time. 
The Alstom deal specifically was a highly competitive deal. It was about building a renewables franchise. It was mainly about services. It improved the global footprint of the company. It was proposed by the power team, right? So it wasn't like, it wasn't CEO led, it was business led. Uh, we took 18 months to complete it. So we'd had 12 sessions with the board. But I'd say two things happened at the same time as we, we had tougher markets for sure, right? So the market cycle, but we just had a team in place, two or three people who were leaders of the team who just, they weren't accountable for their own ideas. You know, I, I never, I never expected people to be loyal to me. I wanted them to be loyal to themselves. And I was quite hard on people who had an idea and weren't passionate about that idea and, and, and weren't accountable to their own idea. And the people running the power business, they weren't accountable to their own ideas. And, and so we just had, you know, complicated business, tough cycle, long team. And, and those are, that turned out to be a really bad combination that took the company maybe two or three years to get back on track in a very complicated global business. And I actually really appreciated in the story how you um, talked about all that nuance and context, particularly around GE Power, because um, it was helpful to understand kind of what goes on, you know, in the details, right? Because it's a teams that are running things. And so, um, you know, just for a lot of people to listen to the show, you know, who have teams and have executives on their teams, how are you able to determine once you have certain people on your team that are, you know, either checked out or maybe you cannot trust them or something like that, that is helpful advice for people to be able to, you know, take back. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, I would say nothing's more dangerous to any business or any team than a smart, lazy person. Nothing's more dangerous because they're smart, right? And, and they're typically experienced and they don't start out lazy. They end up lazy, right? And so they, they can have, high positions, influential positions, they, they appear to be, they think they're truth tellers, but what they really are, are people that have stopped working. And, and so they, they poison, not only aren't you getting the kind of effort that you want to get, but, they, but they, they pollute the culture that's inside there, right? And in, in this case, you know, over time, Look, I changed a ton of people. I'd worked with a ton of people. I knew most of the leaders. It, it was in the middle of my own succession process. So I had a lot of complications with the board about, you know, people and things like that. So it was just, look, I, like I said, I'm, I'm tougher on myself in the book than I am anybody else. Uh, it was a super complicated time. But, you know, when you lose a business that's that big and important for a period of time, you know, it takes a village, you know, in other words. You know, my board was partially responsible. I was certainly responsible and the two or three people inside. Now, for 40 years, my whole career, I would never have told a story like that in public. But when other people are telling it, and they're basically telling lies or mis misrepresenting, thousands of people get hurt, right? If you, were, if you were an awesome employee that joined GE, you've done nothing wrong. Yet all of a sudden you hear your leaders get up every day and say you stink and we should have never done it, stuff like that. That's not a way to run a company, right? That's, that's unexcusable. That's unforgivable. So I, I felt like in the, 
the fact that other people were telling, you know, either incomplete or untruthful parts of the story, it was actually hurting great executives that were in the business, people on the front lines that were working hard, and 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 to a certain extent, their their story needed to be told. This was a good business for a long time. It was well run for a long time, and and people deserve better. Investors deserve better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm curious, um, because you brought up the point of, you know, a lot of nuance and context is lost today. Um, exactly how do you go about kind of reading the news? Uh, and to give some context, you know, like, you know, I'll read the Wall Street Journal, for example. And let's say when I was working at Facebook, I would read a story about Facebook in the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, 80% of it, I would feel like has been, you know, um, crafted in a certain way or is wrong. But then I'll go read the next article that I don't know nothing about the industry and I'll take it at face value. Um, you know, even though I just knew so, something about this industry that was wrong. And so how do you kind of read the news today when it's hard to look at the incentives of particular organizations? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's a great question. It's as true in business as it is in politics and anything else. You've got um, a real sense of gotcha that every story has to have an edge and Hey, I, I get it. These people have a job to do. I, I think what you what you need to do is kind of um, uh, as an outsider, you need to have a complete set of intelligence. You need to understand that a lot of these things that you read aren't necessarily well researched or completely true, and you have to figure out your own point of view. And you're when you're in the middle of it. You've got to own your own narrative. Look, um, look I mean, Facebook's book has been in the news uh, the last uh, couple of days. I, I won't take one side or the other, but I'm glad Zuck came out this morning and told his side, right? Because, you know, look, if you leave, if you leave things out there, I, here's a mistake I made. Um, now, I was already retired and I kept waiting for the company to defend itself and things like that. But I wish I had said more in 2018 because lies calcify, right? So if you're a leader, it's not that like you need to take on the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. In fact, you shouldn't. But if you leave things out there that aren't true, they calcify. And even though people want to believe they're hurting the CEO, they actually hurt thousands of other people that are customers or work there. And it's just you just can't play it safe today. If you if you're if you're in the public eye, if you're running a public company, you, you can't take comfort in anonymity. You got to be willing to punch out your truth. And, um, you know, I think one of the people that kind of brought a lot of this to light, um, setting aside any like political leanings or anything like that was Trump and, you know, calling out fake news. Um, and I know you did have some experiences with him, you know, obviously with NBC was owned by GE. Um, I think you went golfing with him a, a couple, uh, once. Uh, if you could just tell the story of golfing, I thought that was a, a really good one. So we were in, it was uh, 2004, and we were in the very beginning of The Apprentice. And, you know, the first time I heard the idea, I couldn't believe it. I, I you know, like um, Survivor was really the only reality show at that moment in time. Reality shows were still new and different. Mark Burnett, who did Survivor, was going to do The Apprentice. We had lost a show that was going to be on right after Friends. And so we were really uh, kind of uh, vacant on Thursday nights. So the team came in. 
and said, um, you know, we want to do The Apprentice. Here's how it's going to work. And Donald Trump uh, is going to be the, the boss, right? So, and we need to go play golf with him and you need to get to know him a little bit. And I was, I'd known him a little bit through real estate deals, but we went to, went to play golf on a Saturday morning. And, you know, we're just riding around. He said, hey, I'm going to do this thing, The Apprentice. He says, I don't know how it's going to work. But if I ever have a problem, look, I'm not going to waste time with the NBC guys. I'm calling you. Okay, so <laughs> you just better get ready because if if you're not pulling your weight, I'm calling you. Right. So I, okay. Uh, and then we get to like the sixth hole of his golf course. He goes up on the tee box and says, you know, I'm the richest golfer in the world. And uh, everybody said, ah, you're not that rich. And he gets a hole in one. And so those are my. Those are my best, uh, my best uh, Trump stories. Flash forward, 2017, 13 years later, he's president, and I'm at the White House, and there's maybe 20 CEOs and business leaders, and he's going around the room and introducing each of us, and he says, Jeffrey, tell our story, right? So I have to tell the hole-in-one story all over again. <laughs> it was more dangerous to tell that story, but like everybody's got their own opinions on, uh, on President Trump. The one thing I would say is he made The Apprentice a big success, a big success that anybody at NBC ever thought uh, ever thought he would. And uh, Jeff Zucker at CNN, who's still a friend of mine, I blame Jeff. I say Jeff, like you, you created it. even though you and Trump, you know, you fight all the time. You made him. So yeah, I'm curious. Um, you know, one thing probably everyone may agree on is that he. Uh, is definitely charismatic and uh, potentially a good negotiator. I'm curious if you learned anything from him about negotiation or anything else during the times. Um... I, mean, I, I really didn't. I, I didn't do that much. But, you know, look, he, um, again, I, I'm not an overly political person and stuff like that, but he owns it. You know, in other words, he doesn't, he owns whatever he is, right? And I hate him for that. And people like him for that. And, I think there's a certain amount of that uh, that's that's with that's with everybody today. You know, again, I, I come back and say people are going to have their own opinions about Facebook. They're going to have their own opinions. But Zook and Ch and Cheryl, they should fight for it right now. You know, in other words, if things aren't true, now's the time when they have to get in the arena. And and I would say whether you're running Pepsi or GE or GM or every other company, Dell. There will come a moment when you have to fight for what you think is right. You know, Michael Dell's a friend. You're in Austin. Michael Dell's a friend of mine. Icon fought Michael, right, and, and like a, a decade ago. Michael stood up. He took a punch and delivered a punch. And Carl, you know, look, Carl Icon is a bad dude. And, and that was the moment he had to stand up. So, you know, Mary Barra has to stand up. And Andrew Newey's had to stand You know, and so I, I think that's the only... You know, I wouldn't say that's what Trump taught us, but I think this is the one element of leadership. It's not for it's not a passive sport. It is an active sport, and you've got to be willing to stand up for what you think is right. Yeah, got it. Appreciate that. And so um, I know we're bouncing around. I want to bounce back to GE. So in the book, you do talk a lot about you know a lot of the good things that happened. Right, the the wind energy business was I think a great return um, and obviously valuable for the world. Uh, eco-imagination, things like that. I wonder if there's any, you know, particular kind of initiatives or businesses that you look back on and you're like, you know, that one 
the odds were stacked so far against us and, and we overcame them and, and kind of achieved a great return or a great business. I would say, I was just going to pick one. We were a great global company, a, a great global company. And, you know, so, gosh, when I joined GE, we were 80% in the U.S. When it became CEO, like 20 years later, we were 70% in the U.S. So we were really an American company that played around the world. But we became a really substantial global company. Uh, when I retired, we had 26 countries that had a billion dollars in revenue. Uh, we excelled in China. We excelled in India. You know, and so I think I think we, you know, we, we knew how to play a vertical game. So we knew how to be good in healthcare, good in aviation. But we also knew how to play a horizontal game of, of how can we connect the dots of GE in Beijing or in New Delhi or different places around the world. And, and uh, I think that's, you know, and so maybe when I became CEO, we were $20 billion of revenue outside the United States. When I retired, we were $75 billion of revenue outside the United States. We had higher shares in China than we did in Germany. You know, we were respected in the Middle East and, and Africa and Brazil and all the places around the world. So it wasn't that the odds were so stacked against us. It just was, we did this at a time when globalization actually was becoming less popular. We did it by localizing and not counting on trade deals or government's help or anything like that. We did it kind of on the ground, you know, from the ground up and not top down. And I just don't see companies as, as keen to really, and, and, you know, the tech companies are mainly U.S. companies, maybe U.S. and Europe. So, so the you know, kind of the really the champions of the last generation, let's say, haven't had to be global, great global companies. We had to be a great global company in order to be successful. So, I'd say that's the one I'm probably proudest of. And so, um, just a, a couple of qu last questions before we kind of transition to um, you know what you're working on now at NEA and things like that, but. Um, there was one story in the book where you kind of, um, I think we're pretty vulnerable. It was kind of a cool passage to read where you rewind back to 2017. You were giving the presentation at EPG. Um, you said in the book, you know, you probably weren't your normal self in that presentation. You know, the succession planning had been ha happening. And then the next day you got a call from the board saying that they wanted to make the decision on kind of who to replace you. Um, and then, you know, on that airplane home, typically you're traveling with, you know, one of your executives. Uh, but this time you were by yourself. Can you just walk us through, you know, like that flight home, kind of what you were thinking, how you felt at that time? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, um, you know, it just ended not the way I wanted it to. You know, again, not the way that I I'd envisioned. It wasn't that I felt like I got a raw deal necessarily from the board or anything like that. It just was we had some tough markets. Uh, we had some investors that weren't happy and I'd been doing it a long time. And, you know, so in many ways, uh, you know, I'm accountable. I've never felt like a victim. I've never, uh, you know, I did the best I could and it didn't work. Right. So, so that was a feeling that I had that I'd let the team down. And then, you know, like, you know, we're all human beings, you know, and, and, and so you just have this profound sadness that, that, um, you know, all the work that you'd done and, 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 you know, the, the effort you tried and things like that, just, you weren't going to be able to see them through. And, and, you know, that all kind of comes together. It all came together for me 
in that in that uh, flight home. You know, so it's Houston to uh, Boston. It's maybe four hours, and I just had a lot of time to think. Right, so it's it's uh, look, I'm I'm accountable for everything I did. Just you know, as human beings, sometimes it just doesn't work the way we wanted it to, and and that's kind of the way I felt about uh, leaving GE at that particular point in time. Yeah, you know, think about. I, I didn't think about like all the good things. I didn't think about any of the good things. I thought about, you know, gosh, I should have done this. I, I wish I had done that. And, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, it was sad, super sad. Yeah. How do you um, kind of give advice to people who were in a position and they say, you know, I like wish I would have done this thing differently back then, knowing also that hindsight is twenty twenty. Like, are you the type of person who says, look, we did what we could and with the circumstances we had, or is it, you know, so, so in other words, uh, you know, again, you're going to debate these things till the cows come home. Um, doing G Baker, you know, I Lorenzo Simonelli runs, is the CEO of G Baker Hughes or Baker Hughes today. I talked to him a lot. It's a great business, right? You might not like the material sector. You might not like the oil field services sector, things like that. But, you know, the people there are happy. It's a great business. It's well-led. You know, they're, they're going to pivot to do sequestration or some of the things. You know, so I, I never, you know, look, you're going to make bad business decisions. You're going to get hit by bad cycles. You know, that that's, I, I never once, I, I would always tell leaders, don't worry about any of that stuff. You can't control that. What I say is, though, look, if you don't trust your CFO, fire today <laughs> fire him right now you know that's that's the thing that you know it's the controllable stuff that you see people waiting to fire somebody or you know tr- putting somebody on the board that they know is not going to help when the chips are down and stuff like that that's where i try to step in and say look you can't control covid you can't control this you can't control that but there's three or four things you can control and don't, if you make mistakes on those, it just makes all the other things that might happen to you that much worse. So that, that's what I try to give people advice on, you know, and, and, and kind of, you know, look, um, it's funny, the critics, you know, everybody's got critics, right? And they're going to sit there and say, ah, you shouldn't have sold um, NBC in 2010. And I'd say, you know what, uh, you might be right. But in 2010, it looked like a pretty damn good idea, right? It was cash. It was a business that we weren't prepared to go all the way with. And I'm never, you know, I'm never going to accept that as criticism ever, right? Ever. Um, but uh, leaving a person in a job for too long, that's on me, Right. Right. I think you have a good line, which is everyone's job looks easy until you're the one doing it. Yeah, it reminds me even of like the Facebook Instagram acquisition where at the time it didn't look like a very smart move. And now people are like, which that have happened. Uh, you know, we may have created a monopoly over here. I remember uh, we were still uh, running NBC when uh, Google bought uh, YouTube for a billion dollars. We yeah. sat there and said a billion fucking dollars. You got to be kidding me! You know, all we have <laughs> is like 
uh, skits from Saturday Night Live, you know, now it's worth <laughs> what, 200 billion or something like that, you know, so it's, I never right. once, really, I never once uh, thought back on Alstom or Amersham or any of the deals. It's, you know, I sit there and say, gosh, you know, G Capital at one point was worth $250 billion. We got out at a fraction of that. I feel, you know, I feel incredibly badly about that because it was a good team. And, you know, we cer certainly we got trapped by the financial crisis. But, you know, those are the things that I think. And, and look, I think it's important. You know, leadership is this incredible journey into yourself, right, of learning, of renewal, of, of, of actually being reflective on things you can do better. And, and good leaders, are, it's not that they're their own worst critic, although they are, it's that they're always learning. They're, 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 there's not a day that goes by that they don't reflect and say, I could have done the podcast better. I could have played golf better. I could have done this or that or the other thing. That's what good people have in common. Very reflective. And then um, just switching gears a little bit now to kind of, um, you know, current day and the current life you're living. So can you just talk a little bit about your role at NEA, kind of what you're focused on and what you're seeing? Yeah, NEA is a you know, big venture capital firm. When I, when I retired, I knew I wanted to do small companies. I wanted to do co company creation. I wanted to work with entrepreneurs. I thought I'd do mainly healthcare, which I do, but I do a little bit of tech as well. And I'm what's called a venture partner. And, you know, NEA is a big enough firm that I can kind of pick my places to be helpful to the firm. I probably work with 10 or 15 companies specifically. And, and you know, what I try to do in those companies is I, I'm on a bunch of boards, but what I really try to do is ask the founder, ask the leadership team, what's, what's a swim lane that I can be the most of the most use to you, right? So what I try to do is be an athlete that can play a number of different roles for a number of different companies, but not do the same thing with any two companies because all the needs are different. And I think having run a conglomerate and having as much experience as I have, I can kind of play that utility uh, with the company. So that's great fun. That's about 80% of what I do. I teach a class at Stanford uh, and that's kind of the, I'm on one or two public boards and that's, you know, that's pretty much full time. And I'm curious, um, kind of what are the biggest differences you've seen between, you know, some of these more newly established companies, whether it's a public company like Twilio or any of the private companies versus, you know, what you'd seen at uh, a larger conglomerate? Yeah, I think just optimism, the power of ideas and money, right? So I think if you look at Silicon Valley today, it's, it's optimism, it's ideas, it's talent, and it's money. And they've all kind of come together. Um, I, think, I think your generation or the generation of people coming out of school today, a third of them want to start their own companies. I think it's a little bit of a vestige of growing up in crisis. They want a little bit more control over their life. Um, here's what I don't know. You know, like, like um, people liked working at GE and they liked building things that lasted, like a jet engine or an MR scanner or stuff like that. I, I still get a little bit troubled by the amount of churn most of these companies have, uh, by the amount of, I would say, devaluation of compensation and stock options. And I don't know how that all washes out as, as time goes on, right? So great people, the most talented people, incredible amount of money, great ideas, 
and surrounding it is this just, you know, like, um, I know you gave me options six months ago. I need more right now. I'm going to leave. You know? And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that spells greatness. You know, it might, but I'm not sure it does. And I think the company said, you know, one of the things that makes Microsoft a great company, and there's many things, and, and I think Satya is maybe the best CEO in the world today. But, you know, they had a flat stock price for 12 years. And so in that period of time, when the stock price was flat for 12 years, people had to decide, do they really want to be there or not? And, and a lot of people, and a lot of the best people, and people like Satya said, I do want to be here, right? Because I like what we can do and things like that. So, you know, it's been a long time since tech had a cycle. We need a cycle, I think, right now, just to, just to reset. And COVID's actually made things worse, not better. So, yeah, that's what I'm learning. But I, I've, loved, uh, I've loved the experience. I like the people I work with. I love the entrepreneurs. I, I really am so happy to work with entrepreneurs. It's been great fun. Yeah. And uh, when you were at GE, you would talk a lot about kind of global markets, how you're seeing things, um, you know, because you were visiting customers and uh, governments all the time. Just curious kind of how you look at global markets today. Uh, there's so much going on in terms of, um, you know, um, geopolitical issues, um, interest rates, printing of money. Just curious how you think about the world today. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I would maybe just make I'll make three comments. I would say it really is about China and the U.S. So, uh, you know, China and the U.S., I'm a long-term kind of Asia person. I'm a long-term China investor. It's, it's, it's crappier now than it's been in my lifetime that I can remember. But China matters a lot. The U.S. matters a lot. I think it's going to be, you know, kind of a G2 world. Um, on a lot of things. And so I'd, I'd be very, if I were investing right now, I'm, I'd be very kind of focused on what China means for the markets and things like that. So that's number one. Uh, number two, like I just the extraordinary amount of debt the U.S. has, you know, being $30 trillion or whatever uh, the U.S. debt is, I find that to be extraordinary. And I, I find that not to be you know, not to be sustainable in many ways. So I, I'm kind of curious to see what that means as it pertains to the strength of the dollar, uh, where interest rates have to go, all that stuff. And then, like as an investor, I, I kind of like, I, I look at a market and say, which market out there has the most money that's being earned in, in an analog way? Right. So, so in other words, with all the disruption that's taken place, what are the industries that are still making money the old fashioned way? And I keep coming back to financial services and healthcare and say, look, regardless of how many fintech or healthcare startups have taken place, most of the money is still being made the same way it was made in 1990. Right. So there's a tremendous opportunity, you know, media, you look at media, look, most of the money in media is being made in a digital context, not in an analog context. But most of the money in financial services is still being made, you know, on fees, <laughs> breakage fees on credit cards and things like that, which are completely things of the past. So I, I, I look at markets maybe in those three ways. Got it. Uh, particularly on the, the China issue, you know, if you were in 
uh, if you got a call or you know you were advising someone, how would you talk through what the U.S. leadership needs to be thinking about right now to, um, you know, further uh, our national interests? I think there needs to be engagement. You know, in other words, whether you think they're an enemy or whether you think there's codependence or whether you think they're a friend or where where are we on the political spectrum? The fact is, is that President Biden doesn't know President Xi, right? They have no relationship. They have no context. They don't. They've never. I, the best of my knowledge, haven't actually ever met. And there just has to be that level of context, right? So I, I would advise uh, politically, you, you, you have no engagement, no connection, zero. And if I, business people, you know, and every, every business is different, but I don't know how you walk away from the Chinese market if you're in, you know, many of the industries that uh, U.S. business people are in. I just... I just think it's, you know, extraordinary. And then it's, you know, the rest of the world, if you look at Europe and Africa, Latin America, Canada, Australia, the rest of the world, they're not going to walk away from China. They're just not going to. So we better figure out, you know, I, with my students, I always say, okay, now, are you playing solitaire? Are you the only person that, that matters? Are you playing chess, right? So, so it's not just what you do. It's what, it's what your counterparty does, right? Are you playing poker? There's five people sitting around the table. Everybody's playing cards. Are you playing dodgeball? <laughs> there's there's 20 people on each side and the balls are flying. You know, I, when it comes to globalization, we're at least playing chess. We're not playing solitaire. And I think that's actually true if you're, if you're a business person. It'd be nice to think we were the only people that mattered, but we're just not. Yeah. I'm curious, what are most of the students um, kind of doing when you see them graduating? Is it starting their own companies, going into tech, going into consulting, banking? or I would say a third are starting their own company. A third are probably going to tech, both small and big. And then a third are going consulting, investment banking, investment firms, things like that. Right. So it's kind of a third, a third, a third. Um, I, they're they're a lot of fun. They're they're more fun than we were at that age. Uh, they're 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 smarter. They're kind of shaped by crisis, right? So they're they're a little bit um, you know don't trust they don't trust the man <laughs> because they know you know we're too short term oriented things like that. You learn that mental health is a real thing for for the and and you can kind of understand it. Um, now, going back to the global, so basically, let's say there were 85 people in my section, maybe 10 were from outside the United States. So let's say you had 75 Americans, 10 uh, had a global passport, but all of us want to learn globalization. Now at Stanford, there's probably 50% are from outside the United States, 50% from inside the United States, but none of them want to learn about globalization. <laughs> you know, they all think they're going to build a career in tech in the U.S. or or things like that, but nobody thinks they're going to build a big, you know, I want to build a big company in Brazil, or I want to do this. There's very little of that. So it's, it's, it's interesting. It's neither good nor bad. Right. Right. Um, and then what kind of um, motivates you to go do these things? You know, presumably at some point it's like, okay, I don't need to do anything for the money anymore. I can go play golf every day, hang out with my family, uh, but you seem to still be kind of in the game, right. In venture capital, teaching students, giving back. Yeah, you know, I'm just so curious about everything. I want, I want to learn. I want to keep, I want to keep, um, I want to keep curious. I want to keep learning. And, and 
even when I was working, I felt this way, but even more now, I want to kind of help people become good managers, good leaders, good people. So I want to, I want to be able to give back a little bit to kind of the next generation of business leaders and between working with entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs and teaching, it gives you two outlets to go do that. Um, okay, great. Want to ask one last uh, question before we jump into those few questions in the rapid fire round. And it's more family oriented, but um, I know you have an older brother, Steve, who's also been successful. Um, and so I just wanted to hear if there were kind of any memorable stories from your childhood that maybe uh, highlighted the relationship between you two. I was I was uh, a classic younger brother. So he was he's a great brother today. He was a great brother then. And I think as a younger brother, you kind of learn work habits, study habits, from, not so much from your parents, but from your older brother. So I, I got all those things. But but I always tell people, so we were both football players. We were both big. And my my fight record with him was like, uh, I lost 52 fights, but I won one, the last one. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> when you have an older brother, they beat the crap out of you until you beat them once. And then you say, then they say to you, okay, we're going to stop fighting. We're going to stop <laughs> fighting now. And so that was kind of the relationship, uh, you know, I had certainly when I was young. Yeah, that's funny. I remember, um, you know, my little brother, the first time he beat me in basketball, after that, we never played again. <laughs> that's, the, that's the older brother, younger brother uh, I grew. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, great. So um, we'll wrap it up just kind of jumping into a few of these rapid fire questions uh, to, to end it. So uh, first is what books do you most commonly gift or kind of recommend to other people? Yeah, I, I do, particularly with my students, I, I rec always recommend military history. I always, there's a, there's a World War II trilogy written by a guy named Atkinson. And, and the reason why I do that is because like in big battles, nothing ever works, right? Nothing, nothing works the first time. And it's all about pivoting, adaptability, driving change, and things like that. And so I, I, I like to gift military history books. Got it. Um, what purchase or purchases of less than $1,000 have most positively impacted your life? I got a new ping driver, and and uh, it has been awesome. So it's I think it's like 350 bucks or something like that. <laughs> it's been amazing. So, yeah, I recommend it. Is it the the G four twenty five? Exactly the G four twenty five. Yeah, mine should arrive in I think four weeks, and I can't wait to take it out there. I'm one of these guys, so I play with the same irons for probably the last four years, same putter, same wedges, but I have fifty two drivers in my basement, so <laughs> it's fidgeting. Yeah, well, when you come to Austin next time, we'll uh, we'll get out there. Um, and then lastly, uh, we'll just wrap it up. If you have a question for me, I've been grilling you now for 75 minutes. I'll give you the opportunity. You know, in other words, I used to do these weekends and I found that a great go-to question was who is your favorite boss? Because you learned a lot about the person, but you also, you also knew everybody that the person had worked for. And so you basically learned about a 25 other people as well as this person. So my question to you is, what's your favorite, what's your favorite question? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the ones I always go back to in an interview or, or even when I'm getting to know someone a little bit more deeply is kind of what life experience changed you, right? I think we all have these certain life experiences that I look back on and say, oh, this was a pivotal moment in my life that I then changed and kind of became a new person at that time. 
And so, um, yeah, for me, I think that's one of my favorite questions to be able to ask people. I think it's anytime you can ask somebody something that makes it, you know, in other words, if you say, what are your faults? And somebody says, I'm impatient. They know that's not a fault, right? In other words, that's a bullshit answer <laughs> to the question. You know, versus somebody that says, you know what? I just hate bosses who tell me what to do. That's a fault, right? That's all they say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of like you, you always want to, you're judging, what people don't understand is you're judging kind of the way they answer things, not just the answers to the questions themselves in, in terms of how reflective mm -hmm. they are. That's what most people, that's what many people miss. Well, I think that's a great way to, to kind of close it out. Um, thanks so much for coming on the on the show, Jeff. Uh, if people want to reach you, um, you know, now is your role as a venture capitalist and professor is, is LinkedIn or what, what's the best kind of way to reach you? LinkedIn's great. Uh, LinkedIn is probably the easiest way for people that don't want to remember email addresses and things like that. So the, LinkedIn is kind of my go-to social media. So yeah, that's the best way. Great. Thanks so much for coming on, Jeff. I appreciate it. Right. Great to be with you. See you.